Yeah, looking back, the thing where I don't think you have that flexibility is is thinking about who your customer or your audience is. So, like, you can't disagree about that, uh, or you can't kind of waver on that from week to week. Um, it's okay if you don't know exactly what they want, but you should have like a real customer, not like a proxy for a customer, but like an actual customer in front of you. And like, like I said, like they might, and like you were saying, like they might lie to you, right? Or maybe you might not have the information, but like you should be able to go to them every week or whatever, whatever your, your, your cycle is and like get more information from them and hopefully get closer to what they actually want. Welcome to the Software Misadventures podcast, where we sit down with software and DevOps experts to hear their stories from the trenches about how software breaks in production. We are your hosts, Ronak, Austin, and Guang. We've seen firsthand how stressful it is when something breaks in production, but it's the best opportunity to learn about a system more deeply. When most of us started in this field, we didn't really know what to expect, and wish there were more resources on how veteran engineers overcame the daunting task of debugging complex systems. In these conversations, we discuss the principles and practical tips to build resilient software, as well as advice to grow as technical leaders. Hey everyone, this is Ronak here. Our guest for this episode is Daniel Spoonhauer, better known as Spoons. Spoons is the co-founder and chief architect of Lightstep. Prior to Lightstep, he was a staff software engineer at Google. Guang and I had a lot of fun speaking with Spoons. We learned about building systems at Google scale and various aspects that make Google a weird place than other companies. We talked about his journey of leaving Google and deciding to join Lightstep as a co-founder. We dig into the challenges during the early days of Lightstep and discuss the importance of speaking to customers to build the right product. We talk about what it's like to start a family and run a startup, how Spoons defines personal and professional success, and how one can be intentional about building a company's culture. As always, we go through some of the misadventures, and one of them involves a cable being cut under the English Channel. Please enjoy this delightful conversation with Spoons. Uh, hey, Spoons. Super excited to have you on the show. Uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, uh I think when we were corresponding over email uh, and I was, tell, I was telling Guang that, hey, we're going to have spoons on the podcast. Uh, the first question Guang asked me was, so wait, you said spoons? I was like, yeah, yeah. And like, so Guang asked me, what's his real name? I was like, oh, his name is Daniel Spoonhauer, but he goes by spoons. So we thought we would ask you, how did that happen? Like, how did people start calling you spoons? Yeah, I mean, everyone in my family to some extent, I mean, if your last name is Spoonhauer, like it's going to happen at some point. Um so we all use it now and then. Um, and it was like a funny joke for my friends in high school to like call my house and ask for spoons. <laughs> no, but there's I've, it really like the thing, the two things that happened to my first job out of college, I worked for a guy named Dan. In fact, I had worked with him earlier as a TA on a, on a course um, that, that we that he taught at, at Cornell. Um, and I think there was two TAs named Dan and then the, and the instructor also too. Right. So he was like, well, I'm Dan. So you two go figure out your own nicknames. Or something like that. <laughs> so then I, I worked for him also. So Ooh, like everyone, 
Yeah, everyone at the startup that I knew, or you know, that that knew us, like knew him as Dan, and then I was the other guy. And then my first boss at Google was also named Dan. Oh, so there was like, and in grad school, I think in my group, my advisor had four students. Three of us were named Dan. Like there was just a lot. So eventually, there just became there were more people that called me Spoons than Dan. There still are a few, like besides my siblings and my parents, um, like my friends from like my first week of undergraduate. Like they still call me Dan sometimes, but no one, no one else does. Even my five-year-old, like, if I don't respond to dad quickly enough, she starts yelling out spoons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is it natural for you to respond to both at this point? Yeah, although I, I'm probably faster in most contexts to respond to spoons. Because uh. in lo- there's, like, a, such a small number of people that know me as Dan. If you call me Dan and you're not one of those, then you probably don't know me at all. <laughs> <laughs> that that so. makes sense. Uh, well, so since you touched on academia like you 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 got a phd from carnegie mellon if i'm correct uh um, that's right yeah. and you, you also touched on being a ta at one point uh so back when you graduated did you ever consider academia as a career choice or were you always attracted towards like going towards the industry side yeah so i guess i, I did this twice right so when i graduated from undergrad i had applied to grad school and gotten in and then decided to defer because my mentor was basically starting the engineering group at the startup. And I thought I would go work. It seemed like a, a um, you know, an opportunity that doesn't come all the time. So I'm going to go do that. I deferred at CMU that one year rolled around and I, it's like, well, I've only been here a year. I kind of want to stick around for another year to really build something, but they didn't allow me to do deferrals. And so I had to be like, you know, I'll reapply in another year. I'm still excited about grad school, but I just want to kind of see this project through. And so another year went by and I reapplied, but I only reapplied to CMU, which totally freaked my boss out. He's like, don't do that. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't want to steal you from academia, but like you, all of your eggs, it's like one basket, but it was fine. It, it all worked out. So um, I was excited to go back and, and to do that work. Um, and I graduated from CMU in 2009. And the choice there actually is like a little bit more like just context dependent. Like 2009 was kind of a hard time to j- get a yeah. job generally. Um and I had just spent a bunch of time working in a pretty isolated way, not only just like working on trying to get my dissertation done, um, but my wife was actually working at CERN at the time. So I did most of that work from our apartment in like the French countryside somewhere, which was great in many ways, but totally isolating. And so I, I actually had some jobs, um, job offers on the, uh, in academia, um, but they were, I was just really, where they were and how they were situated, I was just worried that I was going to get stuck by myself. And I really, like, the thing that I kind of got from that is I really wanted to go work on it with a team of some sort um, mm-hmm. again. And that's kind of how I got back into industry at that time. I see. So you, you joined Google, I think, in 2009, uh, which some people might were like still early days. I think uh, YouTube was acquired around that time. Uh, no. Like, yeah, not that early. No, no, not not that know. early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, w- w- what was life uh, like at Google as an engineer at the time? Like, what did you work on? Yeah, so um, I worked in the New York office, which is a little bit strange um, because it was a satellite office. Although I think there were a thousand people that worked in it, and so it had a lot of its own inertia. Um, and I, <laughs> so my my PhD is in programming languages, and the guy that hired me saw that and was like, "Oh yeah, we've got one of those. You should definitely work on this configuration language." <laughs> and so, like the first thing I did was work on this crazy configuration language that was used to schedule jobs on Google data centers. Um, and, uh, but I mean, it was, 
interesting as like a infrastructure point of view and even as a programming language research point of view because it turned out we had every every program that had been written in this configuration language was all in one repo mm. all 200,000 of them, whatever there were I don't know <laughs> a lot of them were machine generated as it turns out um, but if whenever we wanted to make a change to the implementation of the interpreter we just run it over all of the programs and see if it changed anyone's in ways that we didn't think we're good but it was kind of weird from a language design point of view or like a language implementation point of view. you don't usually get that opportunity um but i think overall like google was still a place that you could experiment in lots of ways i think i don't know for, for me i guess it's a little strange i i never i never have really worked at big companies or old companies i guess i have done internships at places like microsoft and and um and intel but um I don't know. I guess my experience since then a little bit has been like, oh, that was weird because that's Google. I don't know. Maybe that's what I should start with. <laughs> Google's a weird place. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that weird means many different things for different people who work at Google, like depending upon the team they're working on. Um, so I do like, how did you get involved with uh, just like distributed tracing side of the world? Uh, I mean, considering now at Lightstep. Yeah, so I sat next to Ben Sigelman, who's one oh, of my co-founders at Lightstep. That's kind of how, and we had the same boss, one of these Dan's. Mm. Um, so that was sort of how I got involved. Um, I didn't work too directly on tra on tracing itself because by that time, actually, when I joined, Ben had also already moved on to another project, and the tracing project was actually in a kind of maintenance mode for the most part. Um, that was being used for a bunch of other things. Um, but yeah, I think we, the, 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 the thing at the time, I mean, generally as we in the infrastructure team, were really trying to figure out how to make Google infrastructure easier to use. A lot of it had been built for these very big and uh, profitable teams, <laughs> like ads. <laughs> um, but there were a lot of other teams, it turns out most of the teams that weren't super happy with it. And so um, like the a lot of the work on the configuration side that I did, um, the work that Ben was working on at the time, um, which was called Monarch, Google's um, the, the, the sort of second generation of monitoring infrastructure. A lot of the goal of that was actually to make it much easier for people to use and make it more of... Um, almost like a self-serve product that is a little bit more like the developer experience you might expect on the outside. I see. Makes sense. Uh, so since you and Ben both, both met at Google, um, and then both of you, in addition to, there is one more Ben who, who co-founded Lightstep. Uh, like, how did that all happen to be? Like, uh, how did this idea was how was this idea formed? Uh, did all of you just got together one day and said, hey, we should do this. We should start a company around this thing. Yeah, so the way the story went is that Sigelman left Google because he Google was his first job out of college, and he didn't want to be there forever. And he had some idea that he wanted to start his own company, but he didn't think he should just leave immediately. So he went and he got another job for another startup just to kind of you know learn what it's like to, to work in the real world. Um, and then after that, then he did, he founded a company actually... <laughs> Maybe I don't know if I told you this some other time, but like that was actually an anonymous social networking app. Oh, um, I didn't know that. It was like Secret, if you remember Secret, but nice. So it wasn't just about <laughs> complaining about your coworkers. It was like the whole idea oh, yeah. was like you 
Yeah. <laughs> There, there's one like you, called Blind right now or something like that right now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this one was called Matter and that was totally anonymous. Like it didn't even know who your contacts were. It would just, you could write about what you were feeling and it would show it to the right people and they could support. This is back like before, back in the days when you can only like things on Facebook. And so they spent <laughs> a bunch of time figuring out like how to like laugh or hug or support, like different verbs made sense for different contexts. So they did some cool NLP stuff and he hired... um the other Ben, Ben Cronin, as um, one of the engineers on that. So they were doing that. I, he showed me it at various times. Like, he showed me mocks for it and stuff. And I was like, oh, this is cool. It's cool. And then he's like, oh, do you want to come work on this? And I was like, not really. Like, I, don't really I don't really do social networks. Like, I like don't. I didn't have, like, a Facebook account. I still don't have a Facebook account. Like, um, I don't know. I'm old or something. I just don't like using technology in that part of my life or whatever. Um and so they went off and did that. And then uh, the, the kind of end of the story is that um, Sigelman's first kid was born and I went to take him over some food. And I was like, oh, how's your startup going? Like, first kid, <laughs> startup life, woo! Um, he's like, oh, not that great. I think we're going to do something else. And I was like, oh, what? He's like, oh, I think we're going to do some sort of like infrastructure monitoring, some sort of enterprise software kind of thing. And I was like, oh, that <laughs> sounds like fun. Like, we should talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's kind of like how we got together. And then and he was like, oh, do you mind if we bring if I bring my co-founder? Because basically he and um, the two Bens had really enjoyed working together, but agreed that like that matter was never going to make it. Um, it turns out like they had incredible, incredibly high retention, but almost no network growth. And so it's hard to run a social network when you're not when you have zero percent growth. <laughs> Is yeah, that a commentary yeah. on how people are not very nice and there's only explosive growth when you're allowed to say bad things about... It might be. Humor? It might be. Yeah. yeah, no, no, they did. They uh, did all these interviews with folks to try and understand how they were using it. And, and, you know, people would say like, oh, it got me through this hard time. You know, it really allowed me to connect with people. You know, it was really it, it was really important. And then they'd ask, well, well, how would you describe it to your friends? People would say, I'd never tell my friends about this. It's way too personal. <laughs> So. <laughs> oh, that, that that might play a factor in the growth, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Because yeah. once I guess it gets more commonplace, it's not as special, right? And then you want to hold on to yeah. the, and that's very much anti-growth. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So the thing I think about the beginning of Lightstep and maybe the back to like the Google component of it or whatever, of whatever is like Google is a weird place. Like I said, like Google operates at a scale that almost no one else does, and so I feel like I've seen a lot of other. Um, folks who tried to take some idea from Google and and make a company out of it, or even in t- inside of Google, we were trying to figure out how to take our internal tools and make them into products mm-hmm. on, the, on the outside that people wanted. And it's often, I think, a crazy idea. But what we tried to use our experience is like, Google can be kind of looking glass into the future in a lot of ways. Like Google yeah. was building microservices of some sort in 2004 or 2005, even if they weren't called that. And so all the pain that those engineers have been feeling, you know, since then, like that's actually real data that we can use. And um, what we were starting to see when we kind of talked to our friends and, and as we started to kind of think about um, the market is that people were feeling a lot of those same kinds of pain points. And that's where we thought like, okay, well, we know what's coming next and we're going to have to adapt the solutions and think about the technology in a different way. But, but that experience in terms of what, what tracing can provide and where to go from there, I think was really what, what made us excited at that time. Hmm. It, yeah. it, it is really interesting you say that because I think I heard that quite a lot. And I think the difficult part, right, is timing because even if you look at, you know, Hadoop, MapReduce and Databricks now, but it's like so many years, right, since the, the paper was first published at Google. And how did you guys 
did you guys was that sort of a part of the you know thinking process when you guys like like hey is this too early like is this the right time yeah um i mean i think we picked tracing a little bit because that's kind of was the new thing and i think um you know we could have thought about infrastructure monitoring or something like that right but infrastructure monitoring is already a super was already a super crowded space and so it seemed harder to make um a kind of differentiating product there um and we weren't totally sure like when we actually um and we went into our series a fundraising we were totally open we said like we don't know if this is gonna like explode next year or not but um so just like fyi we might not spend this money for a little while and you guys got to be okay with that. Um, and that was actually like why we were excited in the end, like the partner we found at, at Redpoint for that, like I think totally got where we were and saw where we were going, but agreed kind of on the, on, on the trajectory and the approach that we wanted to take. And we wanted to be ready, you know, when other folks were ready, but we didn't, we didn't know exactly when that was going to be. Interesting. That's really cool to have that optionality. I was, I was recalling a conversation, uh, the spoons you and I had, uh, at, I think Sideglass in San Francisco in 2016, you were generous enough with your time and you were telling me about distributed tracing and how cool it is and the prob- the kind of problems it can solve. Uh, at that time, I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool, but to be honest, it took me four years working as an SRE at LinkedIn to truly appreciate what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, 2016 probably was a little early for a lot of people, I think. Um, it actually is kind of interesting in that we... We agonized over the name, um, over our light step, and and we really we we didn't want to call it tracing in the beginning because we didn't think that anyone would care about it, <laughs> and we also didn't you know want to walk want to box ourselves in. But there was a point, um, kind of in maybe twenty eighteen, um, early twenty nineteen, when tracing really was a thing that people would ask for. Like we would go and, and be talking to people, and they would say, "Do you have tracing? Is that is that is that what you do?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's what we do. Yeah, um, but that, that I think that has changed again a little bit lately, and that I think people understand that tracing by itself is not the only thing, right? So we t- people talk a lot more about observability now, and um, and maybe a, m- a little more of a holistic approach to things. Yeah, uh, I, I would imagine like back in 2016, 2017, uh, the tracing or even observability as a term were new for many people like these kind of problems were relevant at like you mentioned google scale because well it was already going through those pains of having to operate hundreds of microservices and how to kind of look through these things and debug and operate them uh, now i don't know if it's fair to use this word but it's, it's more commoditized in a way uh, where you see tracing as like, if i just go on google and search tracing i i see a lot of options that yeah, a lot of yeah, apm yeah. vendors uh kind of provide tracing in addition to what they already do uh so like initially when you were talking to many of the potential customers or just looking at the market um what, what were some of the initial challenges that you saw yeah i mean i think initially we could go to folks who who already had some background or context on this. I think we got some advice from um, an investor at some point early on, which is like, don't don't go to try to find people and convince them that they have this problem. Like find the people whose hair is already on fire. <laughs> right? yes. um, and I think that's certainly what we did for the beginning. I think, you know, it helped that um, 
actually that Twitter had open sourced their tracing implementation because that was a thing that other people had used or people who had come from Twitter and gone on to other organizations were used to the kinds of problems that it was solving. So we could sort of start the conversation from there without having to start from from what tracing is and we could we could jump immediately to what Lightstep could provide. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's always, I mean, even I think even today, to some extent, tracing is still kind of an expert tool in a lot of ways. And I think um, if you're talking to an expert, it can be easy, but there's a lot of developers, I think, that actually need tools to understand what's happening in their production systems that don't, that haven't necessarily used tracing before or don't have that state. So I think it was certainly a challenge back then, but I think it still is. Hmm. Makes sense. Uh, t- talking about your decision to join Lightstep, uh, c- c- can you walk us through uh what was that process like? Uh, like you're at Google, you, I'm assuming, were enjoying your job. And then Ben asks you to join Lightstep at the time, which was still new and early, like you were still figuring out what to do exactly. Uh, yeah, like what, yeah. What did that process look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the thing about Google is like, it's a great, like the scale that's there offers a lot of opportunities to do kind of crazy things. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of risk for Google when you're doing new stuff. And so there's a lot of really smart people at Google that are there to help you not make mistakes. And like they're with the best intentions, right? It's not like they're mean or anything like that, but they really like there's the, that's their job to help you not make mistakes. And I was just feeling a little bit like I wanted to make some mistakes, <laughs> like not in a bad way, but I just wanted to like try some things without knowing if they were going to work or not and like learn from them. Um, so for me, it was a little bit just like a, taking a different approach to stuff in a way. Um, and I think the, the bigger part of it was just, um, like I said, there was, um, like, like basically the bigger part was maybe trying to get a little bit closer to customers. So I spent a lot of time working on internal infrastructure at Google and working with the big teams and trying to find the small teams that I could get some attention from. Um, I ended up moving into Google cloud because that was actually a little bit easier to see who your customers were, um, and, and figure out what they needed. But I think in the end, I just wanted to you know, maybe I should have become a PM or something like that, but I just wanted to like talk with customers more and see where their pain points were and then try to help them through that. And, um, I guess Lightstep seemed like a place to do that. I don't know. I was excited to work with Ben again. Um, that's like an opportunity I didn't want to miss. Um, I meet this new guy, Ben, that I didn't, that I didn't know. Um, and I guess, I, I, I don't know. I like, I like building things, and not, but not just software things. Like I like building organizations too. So for me, Lightstep was sort of, I had been at the startup before grad school, right? Where I was like the fifth employee or something like that. And had seen a lot of stuff grow as a early 20 something. And now had kind of felt like I had an opportunity to do some of that myself as, as like a leader in that organization. I, I think it's kind of rare to hear engineers talking about, oh, I want to get closer to the customer. Like, was there big events where, you know, maybe something didn't ship because there was a big mismatch in the uh, sort of the product spec versus what customers actually wanted that sort of shaped that sort of desire to move closer to the customer side? No, not that. I mean, it's a good question. I think it was more just like... Um I just wanted the ground truth, right? I just want to know that this is like the right way to do it. And I don't want to argue about it anymore. <laughs> just want to be like, they're paying us for it. It's got to be the right way. 
Because right, this is the okay. When people say Google is weird, here's what I mean by weird. It's like, as much as it's like, um, I don't know, a capitalist monster on the outside or something, it's a weird, like, socialist thing on the inside. Because it's like, <laughs> there's just like, like, ads, it's just like has infinite money, right? And so it's like, how do you, like, understand, like, the market of developer tools internally at Google when there's not, like, a true currency to, to measure things, right? So anyway... That's a very engineer's take on why we want to. <laughs> wait, wait, so, w- w- but what happens when customers lie to you? Like, um, I-, I remember when I was trying to work on a startup idea, I think the most helpful book I read was like the mom test. And then, you know, it just kind of exposes, you know, all the different ways that, you know, your customers can be, you know, telling you things to make you feel better about your shitty product, but it's actually shit and nobody's going to use it. Like, how, uh, how, how, how did you deal with that sort of things? Like trying to gauge the true ground truth. Yeah, I mean, I think like renewal conversations are maybe the main one. Like Lightstep actually has a little bit of a weird path as a developer tool. Like we never, um, a lot of developer tools start in a way where you, you know, you, you, somebody swipes a credit card and pays $10 a month or something like that. Like we never did that. Like our first contracts were like, we go to VP of engineering and like, you know, they've got a tracing initiative and we can help them do that. Um, and I think, you know, the first sale a lot is like, especially early on, it's about, I don't know, our reputation or something like that, right? Um, But that renewal, like one year in, is like, that's, uh, to me, that's the ground truth, right? Because they look across their organization and they see who's using it, how it's been used, and they've got to go, especially, I don't know, as budgets change or things like that, um, certain customers get close to IPO, that's happened. Um, Their finance departments are starting to ask about like these non-trivial line items that aren't $10 a month or anything like that, right? And... um, and I think when those conversations are difficult, like that to me, it was like the signal where we had things that we had to fix. Got it. Makes sense. I think I got very emotional because all the bad memories coming back <laughs> from working on my startup <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, cool. So maybe changing gears a little bit or focusing on the topic of uh, building Lifestep. Um, so your yep. Lifestep co-founders were also engineers, as you mentioned, but you yep. became the CTO for the startup, which everybody knows means that you're the better engineer, you know, than your co-founders. I don't obviously. know if that's true. I think... Um, I, I think everybody would agree with that. Okay, thing. okay, okay, um, okay. But, but so, so titles aside, um, so, so obviously there's a ton of um, new, like, non-technical skills that you guys needed to master, like sales, community building, marketing, you know, all those sorts of things. How did you guys decide on splitting the responsibilities? Like, was it kind of obvious because now that, you know, they've worked on this idea, the social network for quite a bit so that they already have a lot of those set up and then you can just kind of come in and then, hey, like, this is my background. Or was there a lot of um, sort of change ups? Yeah, it turns out that like the go to market plan for a social network in a, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very true. In a application <laughs> no, performance monitoring are pretty different. Um, and it was different for all the different kinds of things. I mean, I think we all have, I mean, as much as we're, we're three engineers, like we are three pretty different approaches to things and three different kind of levels of experience. So I think um, in a lot of ways, um, Ben Segelman, BHS, had, had the vision for things. And so he drove um, a lot of early product decisions and, and a lot of, he did a lot of the early sales stuff. Um, I guess I sort of, I spent a long time, you know, hanging out with SRE at Google and and working pretty closely with them. And I also had the most actual management experience coming in. And so I think that's partly why I got 
sort of a set of the CTO things, which is not to say that like the other, the Bens didn't get involved in, in building and, and even in, in, in the engineering management, but that sort of made the most sense. Um, and Ben Cronin also had worked on a lot of software and was like, I mean, he's um, much more pragmatic sort of planner than I am in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think that's partly how we divided things. But there was other weird parts where it was just like, I think stress, paying the bills, I think stressed them out more than it stressed me out. So like, <laughs> I just paid, the, I paid the bills for a long time. And like, then suddenly, like, I also was like building financial models at some point. And I hired our first finance person because, but, but only because I think they got stressed out by paying the bills years earlier or something like that. Interesting. So for the uh, sort of necessary evil like tasks that you guys had to do, did you guys have like a yeah. wheel to draw or how did you guys oh. do that? <laughs> I think we just went by like who was going to, there's like, we were pretty, I think we were pretty transparent to each other about what we didn't like doing or what stressed us out. And so there were times when it was just like, I, I can't do this, Ben, but you just got some, you, one of you has got to do it. I can't. And then there are times where it was just like, you know, they're both busy with something else and Hey, we've got to do some compliance work. Okay. I volunteer. I'll do the compliance work. Right. Um, or, you know, maybe it was because I'm connected with the folks on the engineering team that are going to carry out a bunch of that work. And so that makes sense. I don't know. I, I mean, like I said, we, I feel really great about them as like a founding team in that I think there are ways that we are totally aligned about what we want to accomplish. And there are ways that we think totally differently about how to get there. And, that's like, that's great. That's like what you want. Otherwise, it's like if you all want to do the same stuff, then you'd have all these arguments about like who's in charge of what, or you'd have to use do wheel of fortune or whatever. But, um, but I think for yeah. us, we just misfortune, you know, in our case. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Wheel of misfortune, important, important game day, uh, uh, testing. But, um, yeah, anyway, so like I said, I think like having folks that had different just ways of working almost made a lot of that stuff easier. Even if it meant that we also had some conflicts at times about like when we had to decide like a common way of doing things. Um, if we didn't have to decide, then maybe it was a lot easier. So it's interesting, right? Like uh, in this case, you're building an engineering product and um, you, you mentioned your desire to be closer to the customers and build for what they actually wanted to use. Uh, and you could also use a lot of your experience to as, as input into the tool that you were building uh, when it came to some of these conflicts per se um, if, if there was those were in the early days where you're still trying to hash out exactly what the right product is and the kind of small decisions also matter a lot um, like how did you go about navigating those or how did that look like in general like how, how can one go about being productive in the in those conversations yeah i think the thing you know we 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 try to talk it out and, but I think we just time box stuff. And I think this is a place where I would probably just argue with people forever. Um, or until, <laughs> until, I don't know, until I got really tired, but I think, um, probably, I don't know. I think this is a thing where like, I would just argue about it forever. BHS would just be immediately like frustrated that we weren't coding uh, and and not even want to talk at all. And then I think Cronin had some totally reasonable thing to say, which was just like, hey, let's time box this. Let's spend 30 minutes. And if we can't get to a conclusion by the end of 30 minutes, then um, then and like we still don't agree, then it's great. You go spend a week building that thing. And at the end of the week, we'll know more and we can come back to this. But like there's no 
need for us to actually agree on this thing right now because it would we'd just be more productive. We don't have enough information to actually make the decision if, if that's the case, right? I, I don't know. I feel like that's a thing I did a bunch. I had an, there was an early engineer at some point who was like, and who was a pretty senior engineer, um, and I, you know, fully capable of like building great stuff and even figuring out what to work on. But he came to me at some point and said, he's like, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to be working on. Like, what is the most important thing? And I was like, I don't know either. The error bars are like important, are huge right now, right? We just, we don't, we don't know. So like, go pick something that you think is maybe the most important and go work on it for a week or two. And then, you know, worst case, the error bars got smaller and, um, and you'll know that there's some other thing that could be more important and we'll, we should go spend some time on that. But I think, I guess this is maybe the hard part, I think, about early startups is you just don't have a lot of information, right? Yeah, but I also feel like it's, it's a, I feel like it's just really nice that uh, when, when there is no clear answer or there's no right answer, it's just different perspectives. Uh, being able to just spend some time uh, on something for a week and say, okay, hey, let's, now we have either more information or more data about what to do next. Uh, that's That sounds like a very productive way of taking conversations or discussions forward. Uh, but how much liberty does a startup actually have in doing these? Uh, w w when you're early, I suppose, yes, but when you're growing through a growth phase, uh, I can imagine shipping quickly, making decisions promptly uh, is a cost function sometimes one has to optimize for. So how do, how do you balance these two things out? Yeah, I think the thing... Yeah, looking back, the thing where I don't think you have that flexibility is is thinking about who your customer or your audience is. So, like, you can't disagree about that, uh, or you can't kind of waver on that from week to week. Um, it's okay if you don't know exactly what they want, but you should have, like, a real customer, not like a proxy for a customer, but like an actual customer in front of you. And, like, like I said, like they might, and like you were saying, like they might lie to you, right? Or you might not have the information, but like you should be able to go to them every week or whatever, whatever your, your, your cycle is and like get more information from them and hopefully get closer to what they actually want. Going back a little bit on responsibilities. Um, so I imagine an important part of being the CTO is to like evangelize the product to developers since, you know, it is a pretty technical product. Um, to me, the role of developer advocate is super interesting because you can't really have huge impact. Like, you know, I think about <laughs> Kelsey Hightower for Kubernetes. Um, but you do need to develop like a different skill set than um, that usually I think engin like engineers don't have. Uh, you know, things like how do you write in a way that actually engages your audience? How do you give really good talk? Um, you know, I, I was kind of curious, like, what was your journey like? kind of, um, you know, getting good at these uh, sort of things. And if you have practical tips for people that are maybe considering... I don't like, know if I have practical stuff. tips. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when people ask me what I learned in grad school, what I usually tell them is that I learned how to write and I learned how to speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> so go to grad school is the answer I got. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was to say, it's not, it's not a very practical way of doing those things, though. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, go ahead. No, I was, I was, I was going to dig further, like... Uh, I've heard something similar from other folks who, who also went to grad school that uh, if one thing that I learned in grad school is how to write, uh, I don't know so much about the speaking part that I've heard before is, uh, but like, what about grad school helped with that? Yeah. And, and I should be clear, like, I think, um, I mean, talking with folks in other programs, I think it's pretty different, but CMU, like basically, I don't know, they, 
they asked a bunch of, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 years ago, they asked a bunch of their like grad students, like what the former grad students, like what was in their way or like, what was, what was their, what were their obstacles and are looking at like, where were people getting jobs and things like that and identified speaking as like a really important thing. So there was this like speaking skills requirement that was part of the, the PhD program. And you had to like, people failed it on the first time frequently. I think maybe at some point, like the majority of time people would fail on their first time through it. Um, so there was, it was like, it had to be a general CS audience and you had to like, and, prepare and actually explain things that people <laughs> outside your immediate group can understand. Um, so I think that, I mean, so seeming is a little bit weird in some way. And I think in not uh, my, my, I actually had two advisors and they both cared a lot about writing. Um, I think one of them actually kept like a stack of this book that he really liked on, that was like a, not a style guide, but like a bunch of style recommendations. And I think I was having some, he had like redlined some draft of a paper I was writing and he was, and I was starting to argue with him about his red lines and he just kind of reached back to a bookshelf behind him. I'm not even sure he looked and just like pulled a book off of it and like handed it to me. And he was just like, why don't you just read this? And then we can talk about it. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, did, did he but I mean, I guess book? it did it work. Well, that the book didn't work, but like many, dra- many drafts <laughs> years later or something, it did work. Um, so, I, I mean, I think, I guess there's two parts that I think there's like learning how to do it, but I think also like learning to uh, learning the, and appreciating the importance of that clarity in, in writing and speaking, I think is something um, that I'm really happy that they <laughs> hammered into me or whatever at the time. Um, I mean, I, I like doing those things too. So maybe like how my, my journey a little bit was not like such a hard journey. Like I, I like talking about what we've built i like talking about um what i think can make things you know better for sre or for developers or or things that i've learned or things that i've failed at right in the past um so like getting involved with the sort of developer advocacy was like an easy choice for me and um i guess i mean the hard part is more like i I like twitter is really hard for me it's just like it's so short (laughs) like (laughs) and so like in the moment i'm always agonizing over like you know character 75 or something like that and like i just i don't think in these like short bursts or something like that and that's actually i don't know like i feel like a big part of where a lot of developer advocacy happens these days so I don't know. I, maybe I should have. My maybe if my advisor could have helped me with social media more. <laughs> How does this tweet look? <laughs> One hundred twenty-eight characters. Yeah. Um, Twitter is certainly hard. I think it's a. I think it's a skill set. Uh, being good at Twitter too. Uh, depending upon the role, I think. Uh, what, 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 people use it as a portfolio as well i suppose uh, especially in like you mentioned dev advocacy roles yeah yeah uh, i mean there's like different things you can use it for but certainly i think some people drive awareness with that with that medium yeah uh, so so thinking about like uh, some of the discrepancies we kind of alluded to between google and lightstep like at, at google you mentioned the scale is like nothing gives well i am not aware of anything that operates at that google scale for for the most part from an infrastructure standpoint so a lot of the decisions or technical decisions that one is making, the cost functions one is trying to optimize for are like, hey, is this going to scale for Google? Uh, we need to meet these reliability guidelines. And I have one of 
the ex-Google employees uh, showed me a video on YouTube about, I think, Broccoli Man, where they just wanted to serve a static file. <laughs> and they had yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so th- th- thinking from that experience to uh, to a startup at Lightstep, where one is you're still building the product, uh, the scale is obviously not as big as Google, and the trade-offs that you think about are very different. Um, as you mentioned, in some cases, like, there are some mistakes you kind of want to do. I mean, not intentionally, but, you know, try things and see. Um, yeah, yeah. So how how did that look like in practice? And how did you kind of go about coming from a lot of that experience, you and Ben both uh, from Google, where you, you knew how to build software in a Google way, and then now you have to switch how you think about things in general. Uh, so how did that look like overall? Yeah, I mean, one thing that was really hard is, like, at Google, you could go to some random team who who you know, built a piece of infrastructure you could use. And you could just ask them, like, is this a good idea for me? Is, is this like fit my use case? And like, they would tell you no, right? Because they don't have <laughs> any incentive for you to use it. Um, but if you like, I think one of the things I missed about that was like, okay, well, okay, we've got to find a database to put time series in or something like that. And it's like, if you go on the web, it's like, well, a bunch of these things say that they're good for that. But like, are they really like, it's like, I can't tell if that's just the marketing speaking to me or not, right? Um but I mean, speaking of time series database, this is a thing that we've chosen many solutions to. I think we put our time series in MySQL originally, which is an insane choice from a lot of ways, but it's like really <laughs> ins- easy to install MySQL. So like, yeah. it'll probably be fine. Um, and then, yeah, you just have to plan out like when that's going to break. And and, um, and yeah, I think we've done that four or five times now. Um, like moving, I mean, we moved to some... Um, I think we put it in Cassandra for a while um, and we actually, then we moved it to Spanner, hmm. which is like not a cheap solution <laughs> from a dollar's point of view, but Spanner scales like crazy. And so like the main thing at that point was just like, look, I don't want to be in a place where like we had, I don't know, I'm not, we're not Cassandra experts or anything like that. And like our, one of our, not our, our customer facing environment, but one of the other ones had gotten into a bad state and it took like eight hours of downtime to like fix it. And I was like, like, this is a bad place. I don't want to be here. Right. And so it's like Spanner, the, you need scale. Like here's the button you click um, to get more scale. And that put the control back in our hands. Right. Then it was like, okay, we don't have a forced migration of this in the future. It's, it's always going to be a question of dollars for versus engineering time. And at some point that, that <laughs> that question came up right and it was like are these dollars worth it is there is there something else that we can do spanner is also not like great for time series for the kinds of stuff that we were putting in but it worked fine um from like a latency point of view so mm. you know go for it no uh like speaking of that like do did a lot of the social capital or like network from google helped uh in those regards like uh, in terms of like hey you know we're thinking about doing this like would that be a good idea or are they very much used to working at google scale so they can't really help you with a lot of that trade-off yeah, I mean, at least at the time, like everything in Google was like their own thing, right? And so, like, none of the people inside knew anything about what was really, or not none, uh, almost no one inside knew anything about outside. So, um, you could kind of try to explain it to them in terms of, <laughs> oh, you know, it's like Dremel or something, and they're like, oh yeah, that's probably a good idea. But like, then you already basically built the entire mapping in your in your head, right? First one, um, or first principle of reasoning. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So. Um, no, I mean, we said some networks of people on the outside that could help with some stuff, but um, yeah, I, I think 
I mean, it was more like when it did come to the point where where the money started to matter more or when reliability started to matter more. I think then actually the first principles did help because then we could sort of go back and look at like, yeah, how should we be building this stuff? Um, and just the experience, I mean, the mistakes that people had made in building these things for Google or I don't know, there's like a, <laughs> yeah, this is like weird things about the way Google wants to build these systems that like don't need to be carried out in the real world. Um, I think there's some, I think people usually attribute this to, um, I think to Jeff Dean, but like, I think the, the, the quote anyway, is something like you shouldn't try to build a system that, that spans more than three orders of magnitude for any, for any measure that you care about. Right. Because if you try to, to handle, you know, a thousand requests per second and a million requests per second, either it's going to be like, way too expensive to do the million requests per second, or you're going to strip it down to like no features that, that the people that a thousand requests per second actually want or need, it's going to be way too hard for those people to use. And so like, just try to think about that scale that like, there's just limits to how far out you can go and things. And I, I guess that informed a lot of our decisions because we were coming from Google that was doing billions of requests per second, but you know, no one else that we talked to was above 10 million or something like that. Right. And so like, it just didn't make sense to kind of use the same, same sorts of solutions. I see. I see. I see. So other than the technical stuff in terms of like a culture, like I think Google is pretty opinionated in terms of, you know, what the sort of value and culture that they want to build and preserve. Um, when you guys were building out uh, Lifestep, were there any specific values that you really liked and, you know, that you really intentionally carried over? Yeah, I mean, I think one of those was this customer drive. I think that's a thing that wasn't true everywhere. I mean, there are people at Google that do care about customers, um, but there are lots of people that are just excited to build cool stuff. And that is not something that we have time for at a startup. <laughs> um, I think, what else did we think about? Um, I guess we, we used to talk a lot about beginner's mind. Like, I think part of maybe knowing your customers, like that they might not be as much of an expert in distributed tracing as you are. And I think we were pretty careful with our early hires to make sure that we weren't just hiring people that had built distributed tracing systems. They were also hiring people that had used them, right? Mm, <laughs> um, or had just worked on other kinds of software so that we actually kind of got people because we were relying on ourselves as you know as, as beta testers um that we got different perspectives on on like how the product would be used um yeah i mean i think you know we we were never like um i don't know we're we're all kind of old right ben and ben and i like we didn't ever have like a a culture of like we're just gonna like eat every meal together and like I don't know, like, you know, Sigelman had a kid at this time, like, my first kid was born, like, I don't know, whatever, a month before our Series A. Um, so, like, we had places to go to. Um, so, I think part of it is, like, we did have kind of this work culture of, like, that we are, like, excited to work with these people and, like, that the people are really important and, and the team is really important, but we also, like, have a space to go do other stuff and, like, um, that, like, that professional success is not like our only measure of personal success. And I think yeah. that, that that's been true for, for, for a lot of people. I think um, there are a lot of other founders that we would, we would kind of talk to that. I mean, not that all founders are jerks, but they just seemed like so focused on their thing. It just didn't seem like that much fun to hang out with them. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a lot more healthy than startups that are very like focused on like family, which I feel like there's so many things that just don't really you can't really make that analogy that it just seems very maybe yeah. I'm just too cynical, but um, I mean I think it actually helped us in a lot of ways because I think companies that form like these social groups where people just only hang out with each other like they get to a point where that doesn't scale, right? Mm -hmm. And so if the culture is based on this mutual trust derived from, you know, sharing meals and just like going to movies and whatever all the time together, that you reach, I don't know, whatever, 30 people. And then suddenly it's like, you can't do that with everyone anymore. Or like you have to hire people that have other <laughs> obligations in their life or something. And then it's like, what is the basis of trust anymore in your mm -hmm. culture? Whereas like for us, like we never relied on that, right? We had to kind of build it through other ways. So a lot of the, I feel like actually we, we, got through a lot of those early scaling things um, a lot easier than maybe, than, I don't know, maybe other companies had. I see. The, the follow-up I was originally going to have is sort of like, how do you be intentional about creating these um, cultures and values? But I really liked how you said, um, you know, in terms of getting people that care more about the customer, just like hiring for people that actually have used tracing. Are, are there any other examples where like, you know, this is sort of like the more, I guess, practical things? Um, what do we think about? Um, yeah, I think, I don't know, we try to be pretty intentional around the interviewing process. I think, um, like, I don't know, that, I'm not sure. I think some things we did, like all of our interviews are all pair interviews. So there's always oh, two nice. interviewers, um, which I think that just, I mean, interviewees generally really like that because they get to meet more of the team. Um, it's a lot, it's more hours in interviewing overall for, for, for our team, but it actually means that you get more information. I think sometimes when there's only one person in the room, you're thinking about the question you're going to ask and you're not getting all the signals. So, um, so I think that is something that worked out really well. And, um, I guess it's not specific to a value, but it's, yeah, it's like a good cop, bad cop situation. Or is it like a shadow <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, like they actually both like would interact with the candidate? We usually we'd have one in the lead and just from like a logistics point of view. And so like, um, you know, they're in charge of kind of driving the conversation and maybe the other one would take more notes or something like that. But, but they can ask questions too or whatever, or like if they didn't understand something, they would bring it up. Um, I mean, that itself can like reveal all kinds of interesting, like interpersonal dynamics about like, how do you manage that kind of stuff? I mean, you, you also mentioned when had a kid when uh, I think around the time when Lightstep started and uh, yeah. you, you also had a kid around, I think one month in or after Series A you also had a second kid recently so um, <laughs> yeah we Ben and I have like a long history of like uh, inconveniently time children his second kid is actually <laughs> born like right in the middle of our Series B negotiations like I think he was actually in the hospital like negotiating a term sheet oh wow um, <laughs> And then, yeah, like we were uh, in the middle of a acquisition process um, when my second kid was born, which was a little bit stressful. But, you know, it's hard to, you don't get to control the timing on all these things, as it turns <laughs> out. So, <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to figure out, like, w what is it like to start a company, have two babies, and like be a parent? as well as be also play that role of a co-founder, like you mentioned, like there are timings you can't control on either sides. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the lesson is you're not in control. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think part of this was like, I mean, why I like working with Ben and Ben, because like to them they're they also have 
things that are important in their personal life. And that's a thing that, you know, allowed us to, you know, recruit a bunch of great people as well that have things outside, outside of their professional life. Um, I don't know. It's tiring sometimes. I'm, <laughs> I'm really good at coming back to sleep when someone wakes me up in the middle of the night. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think I, for me, in a way, it's like, um, man, I'm blanking on the guy's name now. There's a, I should really remember this because it would be a better story. But there's a musician who is like a software engineer and he like quit his job to be a musician rather than having this like steady job as a, as a software engineer, like around the time when he was starting a family, because like he wanted to like have, he want he wasn't proud of his job as a, as a software engineer. And he wanted to have something to like, mm. like be proud of for his, for his kids in some way. And my thing is like, not necessarily anywhere as extreme as that. But I think, um, I did think a little bit about like, yeah, I want to do work that I'm proud of. And, um, that doesn't have to be at a big company. It could be at a small company too. And I'm, I am proud of a lot of, I mean, I'm proud of the work I did at Google, but I'm, I'm really proud of a lot of the stuff we did at Lightstep. Um, and plus, I don't know, like no companies are stable. I know that's the other thing. Like I remember recruiting for this other startup and like, we were trying to get people to come from Xerox park mm. and they're like, can't leave Xerox. It's a stable company. Can't go to your little startup. Seems really, <laughs> really whatever. And like then park shut down. Right. So yeah. it's like, there's like reorgs happen in big companies too. Right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's different kinds of stability for different kinds of people, but I guess maybe that just meant that, well, I don't know, as a co-founder, I can argue for like nice healthcare and a good parental leave plan and things like that, which, you know, I mean, I did it for everyone else, but it turns out I can benefit from that too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, we, 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 we covered a lot. Uh, and one of the things that we don't want to miss in the conversation is some of the misadventures like we usually like to do in the, in the podcast. Uh, th- th- there are so many more questions which I want to ask uh, to, to the response you have, but I'm, I'm going to pro- probably another time. Uh, so I'm going to jump on to some of the misadventures you would like to discuss. Uh, so you, you were at Google. I'm assuming you saw systems break. Uh, we mentioned you also were sitting next to SREs. You, you spoke with them. So are there any stories from Google or either at Lightstep that you could share with us where things didn't go as expected? Yeah, at Google, I like benefited a little bit from building infrastructure tools. I mean, benefit depends on how you think of it. But like, I didn't have to carry a pager for a while. I did like witness a lot of things. Um, I don't feel like they're always my stories, though, because uh, I wasn't. I didn't really have um, kind of uh, a stake, I guess, the way that other people did. Although I, I was on all these mailing lists for like production incidents in some way, right? And you'd get these notifications if there was like some big network event, just in case you got paged, you would know what was going on. I just remember getting this one in the middle of the night when I got paged that was like, oh yeah, there's like some like cable has been cut across the English channel and like <laughs> we've dispatched the ships and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going back to bed. They've got it. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's nothing I can do. <laughs> uh, that's the first one. <laughs> yeah, it's not mine. I mean, I wasn't involved. I wasn't on the ship. I didn't dispatch the ship. I didn't fix the cable i don't i don't even know how it works did, did so. you ask about contact information can we get a hold of the, uh, <laughs> the people that were they didn't cc me on the post-mortem so i don't even know what happened afterwards you know like <laughs> <laughs> wait so but they literally i guess have to send out the ship to do the repair in the middle of the ocean i guess so too. i don't know i don't know this is like the weird another weird part of google now um i don't i feel like my 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 stories from lightstep are probably more mine to tell or something um 
There's one I shared <laughs> in some other, uh, I think for some like Halloween spooky thing, because we it was this, um, we were sitting in this co-working space. It was, there's probably like maybe seven or eight employees. Um, we had some early customers and it just like w- at one point in the day, like the product totally stopped working for me. And like, I looked around and like, it stopped working for everyone that at Lightstep, right? And we're like, what's going on? Like, did anyone deploy? No one, no one deployed. Like, what's going, wait, is anyone hearing from customers? Like, what's going on? And like, the weirdest part was like, it was just us, like this, the app wouldn't load. But customers were like, hey, everything all right? Everything's great. What's up? What's up? How's it going? And we're like, oh my God, what's going on? Like, what do we roll back? We didn't even, we can't do anything. And we like, tracked it down it was like there was some bit about how this is like the lesson here is like don't make your own like experience different than your users but there was something that was like special that was set for light light step employees Hmm. that were like operating system like that we got a slightly different like a not exactly debug but like kind of a debug version of it and it turns out that like some table in the database that was like preloaded into some part of the app state got too big and went across (laughs) that threshold like some part failed where it just like wouldn't load anymore and um you know we all like finally stopped panicking and and whatever compressed some data or or changed some you know max payload size or something like that quickly and everything was fine um so that was one i don't know i guess yeah the lesson there is something about like yeah make sure that you're you're getting the real experience or something like that um the other one which was a couple years ago which did affect customers is that we um we didn't we had properly renewed lightstep.com but there was some other feature that our register provided that was some security thing that we paid the extra 20 bucks for or something like that (laughs) that we didn't renew and when we didn't renew it they decided that they should just like lock the whole thing down and so they were like redirecting lightstep.com to like some registrar web page or something like that that and the worst part about it is like do you know about like soa records it's like the the meta dns information Mm -hmm. kind of um like they had also like polluted that in some way and the ttl on that was 24 hours oh. and so like it wasn't even just like we had to push a new like record set or like i don't know retype our credit card number in or yeah. something like that like we actually like couldn't get it to like flush these these soa records anyway the lesson there is like i don't know renew dns when all the features <laughs> just click auto renew always click auto renew <laughs> Also have, you know, we also improved our monitoring around some of our <laughs> DNS at the time. <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, did, did, you, did you use Lightstep? Uh, like, uh, what I'm trying to ask is, like, did you dockword Lightstep? Uh, like, do you have a dockwording instance which you use to debug the app itself? Yeah, so we do We do have that. It didn't help in um, in that case because we don't, we don't really help with DNS at all. Um, but yeah, we run a separate instance we call meta because it's like the meta monitoring. And, um, then that receives data from Lightstep, and that's what we use to, um, you know, build dashboards and get alerts and, um, look at traces, do analysis, all those things that, that happens there. So I was just bugging someone actually, cause I feel like we do a lot of like product demos in all hands, but we don't do a lot of like, real life kinds of things so i was just bugging an sre to see if um if they would do like a short all hands presentation for lightstep to kind of walk through and and you know i think a lot of the engineers kind of had seen what happened but like for the rest of the team to see how lightstep is like really used and like 
I don't know, try to convey a little bit of the emotion in the moment when like your load balancers are like freaking out and you don't understand why. <laughs> that is very important. Uh, yes. Uh, ha- have, have there been any, uh, like any tips to do dog food, right? Because I know in certain cases, I saw this one of our internal teams where you sometimes cross that boundary of uh, one system is observing the other one and you end up in uh, like cyclical dependencies sometimes. Um, has that ever been the case for you in your setup or do you always avoid that? Yeah, I mean, so maybe one, I mean, there's a couple different parts of that. One is just like, I think kind of back to the customer question, like, you know, are are you really your customer? Um, I think for LightStep, we, because we did sell to larger organizations, like we didn't necessarily, I mean, we dogfooded it in a way, but we also used other tools. And um, I guess I think a lot of the value of, of LightStep is as you start to break a system up into pieces when you have, and you have, you know, multiple on-call rotations responsible for different pieces that are independently being deployed and lots of changes happening quickly. And when LightStep was like six engineers, like we didn't need tracing to tell us i mean it was useful sometimes but it wasn't like this integral piece of like being on call and i think you know as we've grown it has become more um more integral and in terms of like actually meeting the needs of of our organization um i mean there are, are other parts like you might be thinking like okay great they're using the meta instance to monitor the customer facing instance, but who's monitoring the meta instance. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. There's sort of two paths you can go on that. You can make like the meta meta, you can kind of just like keep building them up. But, um, the risk there is like those things get progressively less and less used. And so there's like more and more risk that like, they're not really serving the need they have. So, um, we've done this at differently at different times, but today actually the, the two instances actually point to each other. So the, the customer facing one also is used to monitor the meta environment. Um, and that we felt like was the right trade off in terms of making sure that it's really used and also just limiting the like operational burden of, of oh, yeah. yet another instance that needs to be deployed or things like that. We just have to be a little careful not to make like big changes to both of them at the same time. Yeah, the other very significant downside of having too many chained up is that, you know, thinking about all the times that the engineers waste trying to find like the best inception, like memes trying to <laughs> describe the situation. That's really exactly. wasted time. So yeah, 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 it's true. We, we've, 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 thankfully, we've avoided that. So yeah, so one of the things you mentioned around uh, just not having professional success as the only measure of success and also like having family and something to go back to. And this is something that I think about a lot. Uh, and well, I, I don't have kids yet, but, uh, and I don't do a very good job of balancing my own personal time at work versus my time at home. Uh, and I was reading this book uh, by... I'm, I'm not sure that I said I have good like, a good balance. Between uh, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, 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 what other... Um, yeah, I actually think like work-life balance as a term, I have mixed feelings about that term itself because like I, th- I think they, the lines are blurred. In fact, like I don't know if I would like to work on something that wouldn't seep through my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, I want to exactly. do work that's yeah. on, that I'm excited about. Uh, but I was reading this book by Will Larson, uh, staff engineer, and one of the things he talks about is like as you progress through your career, you have more responsibilities on on your personal life front, and there are the things that you are doing as part of career growth are more important there are more things to do so you have less time and more important things to work on uh, so you have to be more efficient and like 
balance priorities really well. I was curious, have you found certain practices that work really well for you in identifying what to work on? And obviously time is limited uh, as a resource for all of us. So how, how do you think about that where the things that you have to do are more important now and then you have less time? Yeah, man, it's like the hardest question yet. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've got a good answer. I think, um, I mean, I guess maybe part of the answer is having a team that you, that, that, that'll push you in the right ways. Right. I think this is kind of going back to, to like, you know, a lot, I guess a lot of, I feel at least my own success, but I think, um, a lot of light step success back to like a founding team that we have this like level of trust and like, they'll tell me if I'm not working on the right thing. right? <laughs> and they're not going to tell me that I can't do the thing, but they're still going to tell me that they don't think it's the right thing to be working on. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I, I mean, that's probably part of it. I think, um, I guess the other part, I, I don't know. We have this, um, one of our values is be a multiplier. Um, and one of the things I like about it is that you can interpret it in lots of different ways. So some people kind of think of it as like, yeah, I'm going to sit down next to you and we're going to kind of pair program through something. And, and that's how I'm, I'm kind of multiplying. But I think at a startup that's changing a lot, that's growing, that there's an opportunity for everybody, not just founders, that um, when they contribute in some way, like, you know, maybe it only helps one or two other people today, but you know, in a year, maybe it'll help five people. And that, I mean, your company's growing, hopefully your customer base is growing. Like there's a real kind of multiplicative effort to, or, or effect of, of what you could be doing. And so I guess maybe one way I think about it is just a little bit like, like how is this going to affect people, you know, a, a quarter or, or, or a year from now. And I think that helps a little bit. Um, Cause I think it's, I mean, I think the real tension in a startup, I mean, you all know, right, is like, there's just like a lot of things on fire all the time. And it's just really tempting to put out a lot of those fires. But um, I don't know, some of them will go away. And some of them will be not as bad as the other fire that's on the horizon. <laughs> um, say, say no, that's the other. That's the other. Uh, actually, you want to know, I want to know, I got this advice from, um, from one of my Dan mentors at some point. Um, but this is like a super finance geeky way of thinking about this. So um, do you know, do you know what like net present value is, or, no. or internal rate of return? Okay, so quick finance uh, tutorial. It's like the opposite of compound interest. Like compound interest is like how you calculate the value of money you have today in the future. Um, it's like you could invest um, some money today. You want to compare to things you could do. So you want to know what they'll be worth in the future. Um, and his argument is that startup folks totally underestimate the discount rate here, which is like the interest rate equivalent. And they basically will put work off and they'll say like, I can't do that this week. Too busy. I'll do it next week. But they're just like the, like basically, um, no, I'm getting this backwards. Okay. Here, let me start again. Like basically like I was saying like, Oh, I'll do that in the future. And he was like, if I'm not going to do it like today or tomorrow, or maybe next week, like I'm just going to say no. There's no like, I'll do that in six months or something like that. Because like my time and like, I could be doing other stuff that'll have like so much more value in six months. I don't know. Maybe this doesn't make sense to software people anyway. It's like some financy thing. But the short of it is maybe the takeaway is more like um, that, like a lot of people in startups like tend to um, 
undervalue like the impact they could have in the longer term. And so his kind of take is like, if this is not something that you would make time for right now, just say no. And don't like plan to do it in the future because you don't, I don't know, you don't have enough information to know what's going to be valuable. Other valuable stuff will come along. Who knows? Just do it or don't do it. I was thinking almost along the lines of like, if you like sort of cast it forward, it's like a little bit cheaper to do it now rather than like, if you wait like two weeks, it might be even more difficult. But I don't think that, yeah, never mind. Uh, I was thinking of something else. His example was something like, oh, hey, do you want to meet and talk about this thing? And he was like, if we can do it like this week, then yes. And I was saying like, oh, I just kicked those meetings out like six months. And he's like, don't do that. You're just like, uh, you're creating work for yourself in the future. And you, um, you're thinking that your time, your time in the future is somehow you're going to have more of it then. And like, that's just not true. <laughs> you're not going to have more time in the future. So like, just do it or don't do it right now. Nice, nice. And before before we wrap up, uh, my my favorite catch all question: Is there any question that we should have asked but didn't ask? I don't know. Uh, some question like, "Would I do it all again?" or something like that. I know we're like at this big moment, right? Like we're we're being acquired, and there's like another chapter of Lightstep that we're all still excited about. But it is kind of a moment when I've been looking back on things a lot. Um, but I'm excited. I think it's been it's been good, even if it's been, um, even if it's been stressful at times. I've like certainly enjoyed all working with all the people that I've worked with, and um, and I think we're we're building cool stuff. So I'm Shoot, not yeah, about we any of that. completely dropped the ball on that. Uh, but yeah, yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> so big, big congrats on the uh, on the acquisition. Sorry, sorry, we talked about. I guess this that was a little, a little bit, bit <laughs> at the yeah. beginning. Yeah, and then we completely <laughs> forgot. Um, a little bit underhanded, maybe. Sorry. Yeah, very professional <laughs> podcast that we run here. You know, um, definitely recommend it to everybody. Um, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Tell tell us more about the, um, the 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 acquisition and yeah, what what's the sort of um, in the in the cards for? The yeah, team? I mean, like I said, it's kind of the next chapter for us. I think um, even if you go back to like our Series A pitch deck, like we talk about tracing as a means, but tracing is not like the value, right? It's like, it's it's the way that you answer questions, right? It's the, it's the implementation. And the value that Lightstep provides, provided then and, and largely still today is really, you know, for folks that are on call or for developers that are trying to understand performance. But, um, you know, thinking back to some of those pain points that we saw at Google, like the data that was used by the tracing systems at Google was actually used to inform all kinds of decisions around finance and quota enforcement and um, chargeback capacity planning. Like there's all kinds of other use cases for this data. And and like I said, going back to our, even to our Series A pitch deck, like those were always part of our vision for, for where Lightstep was heading. And um, so in a lot of ways, like the ServiceNow is like a way for us to accelerate that, that vision because ServiceNow actually already serves a lot of those other users yeah that are like in you know adjacent parts of the organization so i mean there's there's a lot of work to be done still to make that happen but um but we've got that audience kind of in front of us now right so we get a we get a chance to like help those folks as well um so we're excited about that i think um and i think um yeah i think there's just the other side of it is just that like the folks at ServiceNow have been really excited about, you know, letting us keep the parts that are working well, right, in terms of how we work and things like that. So that's also, like, kind of, I guess, as a founder, important that, like, the organization that I help build and, and then the culture that I help build um, is, like, still something that we're, we're adding to what's there. But I'm also, like, the the 
the, what I've learned about the culture at ServiceNow is also very exciting that they have similar kind of values around, you know, doing, taking pride in your work, but, but also, you know, being able to, to distance yourself from that work in some way. And so, um, yeah, so that's exciting. Um, and honestly, you know, as much as I love doing all these other non-engineering kinds of things at times, you know, maybe I'll take a break and, you know, someone else can, um, do a lot of those other important jobs that maybe I didn't, you know, we didn't assign based on wheel of misfortune or anything, but are maybe not like my, uh, professional strong suits, let's say. So, <laughs> um, as you, as you go through the next phase of Lightstep, uh, like what role do you see for yourself? Would you continue with what you're doing right now? Or do you see that changing in any way or form? Yeah. So, I mean, th- my first job is the kind of like, just like help Lightstep find this new home. And that, I think that's just kind of as a, as a founder, what I'm, what I'm aiming for. And there's a lot of different pieces of that. Um, I guess, you know, I'm excited to talk with ServiceNow customers and see where their pain points are and, and how, how we can potentially help with that. Um, um, and I'm excited to, to try to understand, I mean, they have some pretty, um, uh, I mean, in terms of usage, like pretty, pretty amazing software, um, I kind of back to this measure, like it, it serves some real needs. And so understanding technically like what's there and how can we integrate with that better is something I'm excited about doing. Um, but yeah, so I think I have a lot to learn. Um, but I think I'm going to probably keep doing some of the parts around, around talking and, and writing and, um, and hopefully I, like I said, that maybe if I can free up some of my time to do a little more building than I've done lately, I haven't, I can still, I can still build things by my, most of my commits these days are just to Terraform files. So it's not, I don't know if it really counts. <laughs> in, in my opinion, it does. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> uh, so, so the question we didn't ask, would you do it again? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I like, like I said, I like building things and, and Lightstep was, uh, and is like a really fun thing to build. And, um, I mean, I mean, I guess I would do it with the right people again. That's really important, but, but for sure. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, um, in the actual closing after, uh, my, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the mess up there, uh, was the, uh, the, the, the tool that you recently discovered and really liked? Oh man, I had, I, this is the hardest question I think that you put in here. I'm like, <laughs> just like as a, just, we got some wild answers, man. So, you, oh, yeah. Uh, oh. yeah. I was just like, what have I used lately? You know what I really appreciate? Like command line tools just to do boring stuff. Like, you know, I just had to like find a list of all our static IP addresses. And like, there's just like a tool that Google Cloud has that does that. I don't know. It's like the most unglamorous kind of thing ever, I feel like. (laughs) But um, I don't know. I mean, for like a technologist or whatever, I'm kind of skeptical of a lot of technology <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know about new tools it sounds scary to me i just want the old ones just, oh. just make them work better <laughs> good answer good answer and uh is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners no this has been fun thanks for having me on sweet thanks uh thanks so much students really uh, enjoyed talking with you yeah thank you so much for making the time hey thank you so much for listening to the show 
You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about us at softwaremisadventures.com. You can also write to us at hello at softwaremisadventures.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care.